We're very fortunate today to be joined by Pascal Sorio, the CEO of AstraZeneca. Uh, Pascal, you've, you've been the CEO of AstraZeneca since 2012. And since 2012, AstraZeneca has been one of the most successful uh, pharma companies in the world. You have repeatedly been referred to as the hottest CEO in pharma. Uh, and the turnaround of AstraZeneca has been extensively studied uh, all over the world. Now, more lately, you and AstraZeneca have also been in the press, um, not always favorably and arguably sometimes unfairly. And we will talk about that in a few minutes. But first, I have many questions to ask you, in particular, about the turnaround of AstraZeneca. So is it okay if we start with that and, and we then get to the, the more recent events? Absolutely, Jean-François. It's a great pleasure to be with you and you're too kind uh, to me. I've only try to do my best over the last number of years. So, Pascal, first a few words about you. Uh, you were born in France and you studied to be a veterinarian. But immediately after you concluded your veterinarian studies, you decided to add an MBA. You joined a pharma company and, and never looked back. Two quick questions on this. First, what led you to make that choice? And two, to what extent has your initial medical background been of any help over the last 30-some years? You know, I tend to stick to my goal. So my goal was to be a vet. I became a vet. But then as I grew up, I, dis I concluded I, I want to explore the world. I want to do other things. And the business world was kind of a big ocean for me that I had no idea about. And I wanted to go explore. And also I was hoping that joining a company, I would leave my country, which I had never left before, and I would go out and, and explore the world. So it was sort of a very determined, but determined, but also a little bit naive. It was really curiosity. M most of my life, I guess, I've been driven by curiosity and exploring new things and doing new things. Of course, veterinarian studies are different from human medical studies, but, but nevertheless, there is a, a focus on science and a focus on physiology. Has this been of any help to you in the pharma industry? Actually helped me a lot uh, in many ways, actually. First of all, biology is biology. And, you know, you, of course, uh, rely on, on what you've learned and then you grow your learning over time. But suddenly my training in biology and, and animal medicine suddenly helped me a lot. But it also helped me in other ways. I mean, it helped me being self-sufficient. Also, the relationship with people working with farmers and horse owners. So I think that taught me also this aspect of being self-sufficient, entrepreneurial, and, uh, you know, people-focused, people uh, customer-focused, uh, if you want. Now, one of the things that struck me about your career is how skillfully you were managed to uh, you managed to negotiate your company being acquired or merging with another one. So from Roussel-Uclaf to Hoechst Marion Roussel, then merging with Ron Poulenc to create Aventis, then merging with Sanofi Santelabo to create Sanofi Aventis. And, and through these at least three major changes of control, you managed not only to survive, but in fact to, to prosper and thrive. What is the secret to surviving and, in fact, even to thriving through these turbulent periods for an executive? I think it, it really is looking at uh, the, 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 the glass half full, if you want, is to be curious 
and to see change as an opportunity to, opportunity to grow. That's what it is. Um, I've seen so many people really self-destroy, quite frankly, in mergers. As you said, I've been through many mergers. Um, and people self-destroy because they resist. They resist the acquisition, they resist the merger, or they're unable to adapt. Um, and therefore, as a result, over time, the organization kind of, you know, push them aside and they end up leaving or, or being set aside. I think what you have to have is curiosity, flexibility, adaptability, and, and really a positive outlook on life. I mean, change is an opportunity. If you see change as a threat, you're not going to do well. So you have to see change as an opportunity and then look for the opportunities around you because they always exist. And of course, then you also have to have a little bit of luck. That's for sure. Luck is part of life. But luck comes to people who are actually looking at life positively and looking for opportunities. Now, you, you were doing very well at Roche, but in 2012, the opportunity came up for you to take the helm as AstraZeneca and you took this opportunity. Now, at the time, the company was, was not exactly doing super well. At the time, in fact, I went through articles again, preparing for this, the term career suicide came up. Um, now, eight years later, of course, you've been outperforming the pharma industry by a mile, and the company has been described as the best large pharma story of, of the last decade. So, two questions. One, was the world wrong in its assessment of AstraZeneca? Did you see things that the world didn't see? Uh, or, indeed, was the company in reasonably big trouble? So, that's question one. And question two, can you walk us through maybe three to five key decisions or key actions that, that you took that, that led to this spectacular turnaround? When I was young, when I was a young manager down, down under in Australia, there were two companies I admired. One was Roche, the other one was AstraZeneca. And in those days, AstraZeneca was a fantastic company. And, but through this, I had always kept this very good impression of the people at AstraZeneca. So when I looked at AstraZeneca at the time, I thought, this is really strange. I don't understand the disconnect. I have all these very good people, and then the company seems to have lost its way. And it was really true. The company was in trouble. There's no question. But, you know, when you have a, a good army of people, you also have to have the right priorities and, and the right goals and the right strategy. Um, so I went there and to a great extent, um, you know, I took a big risk. Um, as, as you said, some people said it was suicidal. Um, but, you know, it worked. And what we did was really was a few things. One is... Uh, essentially give people hope, um, you know, rebuild the culture, um, make people understand we needed to take risks, educated risks, but we needed to take risks and we were not going to succeed with everything we did, we would do, and suddenly we didn't succeed all the time. Um, two, we had a, a we, had, we established a plan, the first three months I set up a, uh, you know, a series of task forces looking at various issues. I involved the whole, the whole company. I spent three months, an entire three months, doing nothing but just talking to people and, and, and running uh, focus groups throughout the entire world across all the functions, listening to people. But that engaged everybody. And then we developed a plan, a set of priorities. We focused the company on... Uh, on uh, oncology, cardiovascular disease, and respiratory disease. 
and decided to divest a series of businesses that didn't fit. And again, we took a risk, right? Because we divested or invested in R&D, but if the R&D investment had not delivered anything, then we would have completely, you know, imploded. We spent a lot of time also with the with my management team at the time, uh, working on the company culture, what were our values and and what we believed in, and uh, and so all of this really worked. So I'm hearing several things, and I'm not going to try to summarize all of them, but one of them clearly was clear strategic focus. Um, another one was clearly re-give confidence and hope, hope, but also confidence in the organization. We have some good people. We've done this before. I'm also hearing a, a really interesting point that I want to highlight again for all of our listeners is on one side, you say you want to empower people, but at the same time, also you're prioritizing quite clearly. So it's interesting because it's both, right? It's making the frame sharper and more defined, but then within the frame, giving more latitude. Is, is that a fair summary? Absolutely. I mean, it's really making sure you, you scope what you're going to do. You define your priorities. You tell people this is what we want to achieve. Within that frame, as you call it, you give people freedom to innovate and explore and do new things. But you can't allow people to go everywhere outside the frame because if you do, you dilute yourself, you dilute your priorities, you, and ultimately you fail. So you really, in our industry, which is an innovation industry, you know, and of course I don't know other industries, but it's a, suspect it's the same in technology and elsewhere. You really have to innovate, but in the context of a very clear focus. So you concentrate your energy you bring people together, you help them brainstorm, share ideas, share ideas with the external world, but always in the context of a very defined frame. Now, one of the key moments during that turnaround is uh, the takeover attempt by Pfizer. In 2014, so at the time you had been around for about 18 months, things were not fully back on track. And and so Pfizer basically tried to take over the company. And you chose, you and your board, of course, chose to resist the takeover attempt. So question number one, why did you choose to oppose? And two, again, how did you manage the defense, including how did you manage the management team at the time? Because these things can be quite distracting. We were at the beginning of our, beginning of our journey. We had planned to communicate to investors and uh, analysts at some later stage, communicate on what we, are do we were doing. But we, were, we wanted to wait because we thought we need a few more proof points of our progress before we talk to investors. Now, Pfizer approached us and that sort of forced us to get out and uh, communicate our plan and show what we were doing to the whole world and communicate on our progress, etc. So we had to go out and, sh and share our plan. And as we did this, and people, started, people believed in it, and of course that sends a positive signal back inside the company because people say, oh, well, if, they sh if the shareholders believe, then, then, then there's a good chance for this plan. And everybody rose to the occasion. Everybody was working hard, and it created a huge amount of energy. It unified the company. It gave people confidence. It gave people energy. More recently, you and AstraZeneca took strong positions regarding greenhouse gas emissions. So you've committed to an ambitious plan and an ambitious set of targets for 2025, another one for 2030. 
tell us why you've made this decision and, and maybe also a few of the commitments that you've made. I've always been close to nature and, and the planet. And so, you know, I believe that um, we have to keep this planet healthy. Two is I have a grandson and maybe I'll have more grandchildren at some point. And I want to leave them with uh, a, a world they can live in. Um, and I think, I think we all have to realize that climate change is the biggest uh, threat to humanity. Uh, I don't think everybody realizes the sense of urgency that is required to address it. Um, and it's really, really, really critical. So that's why we set up those, these goals. And we have a goal to be carbon neutral by 2025 for our own operations and carbon negative by 2030 for the totality of our, of our uh, value chain, including our suppliers. For 2025, our own operations, we are very much on track. We have already reduced substantially our carbon emissions. Um, we are also planting 50 million trees around the world, um, Indonesia, Africa, Australia. We're moving to 100% green energy. Uh, we're moving to, uh, we want to achieve 100% electrical car fleet by 2025. And now we, I'm part of the SMI, Sustainable Market uh, Initiative of uh, Prince Charles, who has uh, managed to convince more than 100 companies globally, US, Europe, and, and other country, other regions, uh, companies from around the world to rally behind this effort. So you know, the, the business world is now stepping up and, and, and starting to make an impact. So we, we, we at IMD indeed are observing uh, an increase in momentum. Nevertheless, it is, I think, relatively fair to say that so far, the pharma industry has not exactly, as a general rule, the pharma industry has not been exactly at the forefront of the reduction of, uh, of uh, greenhouse gas emission. Any, any idea why? I'm hoping that uh, with pressure from shareholders uh, and uh, society at large, people will change their, their, their behavior. And pharma hasn't done much, which is a pity because the healthcare system, not pharma, but the entire healthcare system, is a big carbon it's emission. It's a significant producer. Yeah, significant production. And I can tell you, if you are in a hospital, it's not good for you to start with, of course, but you also produce a lot of carbon because being in a hospital, you know, consume energy and, 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 and many things. And you, you, your, your carbon footprint when you're in a hospital increases. So one of the things we started working on, and COVID has been an accelerator of this, is really look at can we marry digital and new approaches to treating people that keep them outside the hospital? And in fact, we did this because with COVID, people didn't want to go to the hospital. They were worried of being infected. But it also reduces the carbon footprint. And it also improves the economics. Because if you keep the people outside the hospital, then they cost less, right? So, so using digital and new treatment approaches really can help reduce cost, you know, help patients, and reduce carbon production. Now, Pascal, the last 18 months and the COVID crisis. AstraZeneca is not a vaccine company, but early on you decided that you wanted AstraZeneca to be part of the solution for the world. So you entered into a partnership with Oxford University. They brought the initial science. And of course, you and AstraZeneca brought clinical trial, regulatory and, and manufacturing capacity. Now, very importantly, you committed from day one 
uh, to do all of this at zero profit, while of course other pharma companies are making very significant profits from, from their efforts on the vaccine side. So two questions. Question number one, how did you and, and the board make the decision to, uh, to commit all of this work at zero profit? Number two, I'm almost tempted to say, how could something so good turn out to be so challenging? Yeah, so it's a great uh, question. I mean, first of all, you know, um, we decided to do this because we thought from time to time when, when people call, you have to answer, yes, I'm going to help, right? Um, we, uh, uh, we are in a world that is give and take, and when you can help, and if you have an opportunity to help, you should not say no. Uh, so we decided we didn't want to lose money. We could not lose money. That would, that, was, that would not be fair to our shareholders, but we could do it at no profit because we thought this uh, pandemic will be over when everybody is vaccinated or a sufficient number of people in the world are vaccinated. And, you know, everybody focuses on Europe and the U.S. Uh, but when you look at U.S. plus Europe, it's about 800 million people. There's another 7 billion outside US and Europe. And so you have lots of people in need of, uh, of, of vaccination. And we thought the only way to bring vaccines to these people is really to do it at a very low price. And, and we had a, a, a relationship with Oxford and, and basically they were developing this vaccine. And we said, yes, we can help and we're willing to help and we can you know, uh, leverage our skills. We're not a vaccine company but we think we can do it. I think we have uh, delivered very, uh, 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 a lot of uh, doses of vaccines that are helping people. So first of all, as you said, it's a, it's a very effective vaccine. Real life studies in the UK, Korea, Italy, many countries show 90 plus percent protection against severe disease hospitalizations, the same as the other vaccines, um, even against the Indian variant after two doses. Now safety, you have this very rare uh, so-called TTS or, or blood clot, very rare. But there are, it's different medicines, different vaccines will have different safety profile. There's no product in our industry that has zero side effect. That doesn't exist, right? And so what you got to do is manage those cases. And for instance, these blood clots, they can be manageable if people are well informed when they are vaccinated and they know the symptoms, they get diagnosed early, they get treated. But if you look at what we've achieved in the end, we've uh, delivered so far to date 700 million doses of vaccines. The one thing though is that our vaccine doses, they mostly go to the low middle income countries and Europe. We are the second largest supplier of vaccine to Europe, but mostly they go to low middle income countries. In India, 90% of people are vaccinated with our vaccine. They have vaccinated almost 350 million people. Without our vaccine, India would have been a real mess, actually. It's a terrible even tragedy, worse. but it would have been even worse than it has been. COVAX, 90% of supply to COVAX come from our vaccine. So as an industry, we have covered the whole world. So no regrets. I have zero regret. I mean, I think uh, you have to focus on what has been achieved. Um, so many countries, I mean, I met the president of Korea at the G7 the other day wanted to thank us for our effort. I, I met the Minister of Health of Brazil the other day. 60% of vaccinations in Brazil are with our vaccine. They did an experiment. They vaccinated one dose only, 200,000 people in one city, and they looked at what happened. And within a 
two or three weeks, the, the hospitalizations declined by 70% after one single dose. And if we were else in this big city, the pandemic was still raging. So the vaccine clearly has an effect. Um, so many countries around the world are coming forward to say thank you. I mean, the economies have restarted early in many of those countries because of the vaccine. We have to stay focused on the goal and look at what we've achieved. So I think this is one of the themes that is coming out of this discussion. It's the importance of careful and thoughtful strategic definition and focus, and then a certain amount of fortitude and resilience on the part of the leaders. If you want to be a leader of an organization, whether it's a company or a political leader or any kind of a leader, if you're not prepared to be criticized at some point, um, just don't do it, right? Because if you want to make a change, if you want to make a difference, and if you want to lead an organization, whichever that is, you're going to be criticized because not everybody's going to agree with what you do. So if you don't have that fortitude, if you don't have this ability to say, well, that's part of life, people will criticize me, but I stay true to what I believe is right. I'm going to do what's right. Then, then if you don't, if you're not prepared to do this, uh, you, don't don't do it because criticism comes with the job, whichever leadership you are in. Now, as significant as the COVID crisis has been over the last 18 months, you've also been working on lots of other things. And one of the other projects that you worked on uh, is the acquisition of a, a very substantial acquisition of a company called Alexion, very significant because almost $40 billion. It's a U.S. biotech specialized in rare diseases and immunology drugs, an area that is um, not yet your forte, and so clearly that you're, you would be adding to your portfolio. Please walk us through the rationale of this major acquisition. Our journey as a company has been to... Um to move from essentially what we call in our industry primary care, which is uh, care delivered by general practitioners to specialty care, which is care delivered by specialists, often in hospitals, but not always in hospitals. One of our values is we follow the science. Another value is we put patients first. And so we thought that uh, Alexion fits very well, our focus on you know patients, but also our science focus. We we want to be strengthening our presence in immunology, and they have a strong presence in a special uh, part of immunology called the complement cascade. And uh, we think there's a strong scientific synergy there. So we think our technologies can help discover new medicines for those diseases, which in the past we didn't develop and commercialize because we are not in this field and we don't know how to do it. We stuck to cancer, respiratory, cardiovascular disease, again, staying focused on your priorities. But now the company is at a different stage. We are bigger and we think we can uh, create value through the expertise that uh, Alexion has in, in immunology and our expertise in, in genomics. I think society recognizes that uh, innovation is key. And I think COVID also showed uh, society the importance of a healthy uh, population and a, health, and, and a good healthcare system. I mean, the, the, way, the reason companies were able to step up, Pfizer, Moderna, ourselves, J&J, and, and others, to step up and try to work on a vaccine is because we have a healthy healthcare and pharmaceutical sector that was able to step up and work on these vaccines. Pascal, I want to thank you for your time through this interview and also, again, you and, uh, and of course, all of your teams 
for indeed stepping up and being part of the solution. The world is not out of this crisis yet, but there is light at the end of the tunnel and you guys have been part of creating that light. So thank you very much and all the best. Thank you, Jean-François. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.